0: Welcome to Kibi of Liberty. Hey, Peter, how's it going? It is great. Thanks for having me on. Unfortunately for you, as an expert in Austrian monetary theory, and banking—it's probably been an insanely busy couple weeks for you.
1: Yes, uh, it has. What's the Lenin line? Uh, decades happen in weeks. Yeah, it has been absolutely insane. We've gotten sort of the nineteen seventies rolled into two thousand eight all at once—a
0: a perfect storm, except that it was perfectly predictable. Go. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and and you remember that John Stewart rant from back in the day? Yeah. And, and you know, that was back when he was funny and uh, he was talking about the the 2008 crisis. And he said, you know, why do we get, keep having these perfect once in a century, once every three millennium storms that keep happening every freaking week? And he said, I'm starting to think these aren't perfect storms. These are regular storms and we have a shitty boat. And that's what uh, we're we're discovering at the moment. We got a whole lot of crappy boats out there. And so therefore, a whole lot of regular storms that are turning into perfect storms.
0: Yeah, I, I want to get into the details of, of the banking crisis and, and inflation, but maybe let's give folks a baseline. We talk about Austrian economics a lot on this show. Yeah. Um, I try to keep it as simple as possible, um, uh, primarily so that I can understand it. Um, but I do, I do feel like there's, there's some particular, we talk a lot about the libertarian moment, but I feel like this, again, is the Austrian moment, but it's a little bit like Groundhog Day. We keep explaining yeah. to people what are what are ultimately like very basic concepts, but but the the government and public policy continues to do the same thing, hoping that it that it doesn't get worse. But what is it about what is it about um, the Austrian theory of money and banking and the business cycle that that make give it its predictive power when we see the kinds of things that are happening right now?
1: Yeah, I think that Austrian at its core. I mean, first off. You know, Austrian is just a continuation of thousands of years of economic thought. Uh, It's not some bizarre cult offshoot like Keynesianism is. Uh, Murray Rothbard, of course, has his exhaustive study, which is, I mean, it's fantastic if you have an extra summer uh, to read it. And he goes through really, I mean, just thousands of years back and he sort of traces through all of these different concepts, the just price, the labor theory of value, just all these things. And the point of that is that, you know, economics had figured out how the world works substantially by say 1900. Uh, We had, you know, um, accurate models of human behavior. Uh, We knew, you know, how to make an economy function. Actually, a lot of things uh, one of my areas of interest is uh, Chinese economic history. And you can go back to the, to the year 1000 and you had the imperial examinations and there was a big section in there on economics. And the, you know, for example, they said, uh, if your region has a famine, uh, what's your solution to that? And the answer is that you subsidize transportation into the region, right? So every cart that comes into the area, you give them some silver. And this is sheer genius. That's absolutely correct. Right? That, is, that is the best way for a government to actually fix the problem. And it's so, you know, sort of mind-blowing uh, to modern eyes because we are so used to the, just these absolutely idiotic policies where their only response to a crisis is to make it worse. So the moral story is that Austrian economics is simply the evolutionary continuation of thousands of years of economic history that has figured this crap out. Right? And then we had the Keynesian moment where everything went, off, we went down this inflationary rabbit hole, inflationism, uh, which you know has long been a crank theory, propose, uh, generally supported by special interests. Governments love it because it basically says government needs to do more always, no matter what happens. And so, I think that where we are at the moment is that we have the truth. We being economics, currently known as Austrian economics, we have the truth. They have the resources, and it's going to be a long battle until you know, there's really two outcomes. Either they screw up so bad that the public just wholesale rejects them and these guys are out of there. You kind of hope that doesn't happen because that implies a whole lot of collateral damage. Uh, Or we can convince enough people that, you know, people actually (laughs) ask their representatives, you know, we can actually elect people uh, who can change it. And, you know, as for Austrian economics, um, you know, 2008, I think for a lot of people was really the moment when they first... Uh, heard about Austrian economics where they first had exposure to these ideas. I myself studied economics in my undergrad uh, up in Canada, and I never heard of Murray Rothbard, Mises. Uh, I may have heard of Hayek in the context of his his mainstream article about knowledge. Uh, I had never heard that there was a school called Austrian. It was not until Mark Skousen, his uh, Making of Modern Economics when I was like 28, that I even heard that there was an Austrian economics. I mean, it, it was obscure. And 2008 put us in the moment. Uh, a lot of, you know, what we would now call populists uh, opened their eyes to it. And then, of course, you had Bitcoin come along. And so at this point, between the populists and the Bitcoiners, I think for young people, uh, Austrian economics is a real contender.
0: Yeah, so it's, uh, it's I learned about Austrian economics uh, from, from eating, re- reading Ayn Rand when I was a kid but I stumbled across Grove City College by accident and discovered that the uh, chairman of the department was a guy named Hans Senholtz, who was, yep. a, who was a student of Mises. And um, so I had, I had access to these things um, early on, but it was an accident because there, there, were, there was maybe one or two places in the world where you could study Austrian economics at the time. But a random fun fact, you're at the Heritage Foundation now and when Murray Rothbard was writing his history, Economic History of the World, opus, um, he was working on the Spanish Scholastics and giving a series of lectures at that Mises Institute office that, that was just a couple doors down from where Heritage is now. So that that was uh, we didn't think he'd ever finish that project. <laughs>
1: I can imagine it's Rothbard is astounding. You know, his, his conceived in Liberty that goes through, um, you know, American history essentially since not since the founding, since Jamestown, it's just the detail that's, it's, it's really eye opening. So I, I've been talking a lot
0: about, um, uh, Frederick Hayek and the denationalization of money and particularly that, that really short clip that we all share so much now, um, which was, I think that interview was three or four years after he published the book, and he was imagining that you know everything that's bad in the universe, I'm, I'm only slightly overstating, but everything that's bad in the universe was when government uh, monopolized money, and the, the, the obvious way to fix it is to get government out of the business of money, but that's going to be impossible in Hayek's thinking, but we needed some sort of sneaky workaround that, that would that would undermine the the monopoly power of of the, not just the Federal Reserve but the whole corrupt system. And I know you're. I bring this up because I know you're also a Bitcoin advocate. And and a lot of people say you know Hayek was uh, not really but sort of anticipating Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it, it's always tricked tricky to say who's anticipating what, um, you know, in a sense, anybody who believed in uh, commodity money or gold, you know, we could say they were anticipating Bitcoin as well. Um, so setting aside um, sort of the, um, the hair splitting um, on that, the, you know, the, I think in a sense, Satoshi Nakamoto um, sort of in was the embodiment um, of Hayek's statement there in the sense that You know why was he pseudonymous why has he apparently not spent his (laughs) billions upon billions of bitcoin and i think that he anticipated uh that you know taking money away from the state is not something that you can do on your own they will not let you they will come after you uh he used a pseudonym presumably because he was aware that he would be arrested uh he had reason to think this because you know there were many private monies that uh, preceded him, you know, such as E-gold and what was it, Um, Bernard Nothouse? right? He had the Liberty coins, I think it was. And these were alleged $1 coins that were silver. So their value was on the order of whatever, $20 or $40. And he was uh, threatened with prosecution for counterfeiting. That would be the worst counterfeiter in history. Yeah. I just pre prima facie. That's that's an absurd accusation. Um, But that's that's how government treats it, because, you know, as dumb as they are in every other area, government understands one thing and they're very, very good at it, which is seizing and keeping power so i think hayek is absolutely correct there is no way the only way that you can get government out of money head on is that the government screws up so badly that it collapses and this is of course the history of fiat it always collapses and at that point people look around the wreckage and they try to salvage what's left and they go with commodities um but of course none of us hope for that there'll be many many deaths uh and so the alternative is uh the peaceful revolution you have to get in under the radar you have to design something that is so decentralized uh, that they cannot stop it. And, you know, the, there are many elements um, of Bitcoin that are absolutely genius, uh, but one of them is the fact that because of its decentralized nature, not only does that make it, you know, such an amazing tool, uh, it just so happens to inoculate it against even the most totalitarian government. China has not been able to stop Bitcoin. It can stop everything. It can stop, you know, sharing Winnie the Pooh memes on TikTok, uh, but Bitcoin, it cannot stop.
0: At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. So let's take a step back because I want to I wanna, I wanna... Um, end on hopefully some positive, at least uh, proactive steps that people can take to protect themselves. But do you trace the origins of this crisis to um, the trillions that we spent when we locked down the economy, or do you go all the way back to to the bank bailouts of 2008? I know you can go further back, but.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could go back to the First Bank of the United States. And yeah, we <laughs> you know, can blame Hamilton kind of. for all
0: of this, I think. <laughs>
1: That's right. It all starts with Hamilton. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's always a question of uh, where you go in approximate sense. I think that you want to differentiate between sort of the gasoline and the spark. Uh, the spark of the banking crisis, um, this is kind of built into the system, right? The Fed was created uh, to enable... Uh, you know, this sort of inflationary, permanent inflationary regime that's to pay its buddies. And everybody knew that, you know, there are sparks in that process uh, in the form of bank panics. And so, of course, the Fed was founded uh, in order to bail them out. So in a sense, it's an interaction, uh, you know, but if we're looking at sort of the source of this specific crisis, I generally start the story with uh, the Fed financing the lockdowns, right? If, If we imagine early in the uh, COVID uh, crisis, if we imagine some junior staffer walking in and saying, hey, fella, you know, in the in the Bureau of, of uh, Economic Management and saying, hey, I've got an idea. We're going to shut down the entire economy. Yes, tax revenues are going to drop in half, but that's fine. We can lay off a bunch of government workers. We don't need them anyway. Okay, so he would have been, uh, you know, exiled to the, <laughs> you know, <laughs> to some remote location in um, Palestine, Ohio. Uh, and so instead, of course, right? They didn't have to face that choice. They could shut down the entire world because they had this venture capitalist on hand, uh, sort of the, the, the venture capitalist of every crisis, which is at the Federal Reserve, is standing there ready to hide all of the pain long enough that they can do it, right? So whether it's a you know war of choice in some remote stand uh, or whether it was COVID lockdowns, Uh, The Fed is their tool to essentially launch the crisis, to hide the costs to the people. Can you imagine if they actually sat down and told the voters, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend $7 trillion. What does that work out to? I don't know, $200,000 per some large number. Uh, So, you know, here's what the bill is going to look like. But, you know, by gum, it's a very, very bad flu. Uh, It it never would have happened. So I think that that really sort of sets the stage. And- you know, once you start that, you 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 get this pendulum swinging in all kinds of directions, and very strange things happen. So, of course, one of the things that happens the inflation took off. The Fed then, you know, had its panic response to that, which was to jack up rates at the highest rates since the 1970s. And then you get that spark shows up, the bank crash. But in a sense, you know, going back to John Stewart's right, these are regular storms. A lot of these individual things, like if we look at Silicon Valley Bank or Signature or even Credit Suisse or Deutsche. Each on its own was a regular storm. You know, Silicon Valley Bank had some jokey loans, you know, friend prices and uh, using the yacht. I mean, whatever. Yeah, there were goofy things that go on. Bankers are not always um, being monitored very well but these should have been regular storms these should have just been random you know somebody screwed up and uh, somebody lost money so what is turning these all into this massive crisis and i think it's that right it's, it's it's that gasoline that's been poured in where they have so yanked around the economy they've they've bent it so many times that now it's breaking yeah it's 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 hard to imagine and i i even
0: had a hard time imagining it writing in march of 2020 I had I found it hard to imagine that when they talked about locking down the economy that they that they meant it because it was it was almost impossible to imagine something we've never tried before and it it turns out that they they had two tricks which was one is we're not going to lock down the entire economy but we're going to protect the laptop class at the expense of people that still had to figure out how to feed them right so that right. It, it wasn't a real lockdown but then they you know they monetized it by just by printing money, which was a huge, uh, maybe purposefully a huge transfer of wealth from the people that were still working to the laptop class that, that know how to sort of play the system and, and profit off of inflation.
1: And what was absolutely key to that is that public opinion throughout that early era was completely with them. Um, you remember when public opinion started shifting and then all of a sudden they flipped on a dime right? Um, and, you know, people at the time said, yeah, well, the science changed, the politics changed. Uh, and indeed, you know, the, the saving grace of politicians is that they're spineless. And so if political opinion shifts, the vast majority of them um, will shift along with it. But the trick is early in the pandemic, it was overwhelming. Everybody loved what they were doing, shut it all down. And I think a huge part of that was the massive bribes paid out right no questions asked any benefits you want hey it's a covid emergency uh the stimulus checks at the time i was in canada so they were giving out basically a, a universal basic income every month the cerb and i you know i was i was writing against the lockdowns i They gave me all the anti-lockdown and anti-COVID stuff because I was American, so I couldn't be canceled. The rest of them were afraid of never working again in the country. Um, But that's what was striking was I was like, what the heck happened to Canadians? It was like 70, 80% support for this crap. Oh, universal basic income, there you go. So the people were effectively bribed to do all this crap and they were bribed with a puddle of gasoline that is now lighting on fire. It's kind of a, it's a political dilemma and I can
0: see why um, individuals who are, were literally prohibited by the government from working would say, well, I would rather work, but if you're not gonna let me work, I guess I guess I should take the check and I'm not gonna feel bad about it. Um, Thomas Massey, one of my favorite congressmen, called it yep. the cheese and the trap. I, you probably yeah. remember this when when he yep. was the only guy willing to insist that Congress vote on that first true $2 trillion spending boondoggle. But but again, like, and and Thomas brags about the fact that he's never read any of the Austrian economists, uh, and he doesn't know anything about Austrian business cycle, but but it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you create six, seven, $10 trillion out of nothing, that there will be um, some obvious consequences and and even some more nefarious consequences that that you've been documenting over these over these last months as as the chickens have come home to roost,
1: yeah, and I think that a lot of people um if they don't really understand what the Fed does, then it can almost look like a cult, right? You know we're always like Bitcoin fixes this and we're on and on about about the fed and i'm I'm sure at some level that like you know you guys are obsessed, you know what it. What are you going to come with the lizard people next? Um, but once you actually understand what the Fed does, how uh, <laughs> how many problems it creates, right? On on its own, you know, just offhand, it probably increases the size of the government by half uh, because it makes a sort of launching these new crises, launching these new spending programs, so painless. Uh, it really is like a venture capitalist. They provide the cheese for every war, for every you know lockdown, for um, for for every new program, right? They can make it all painless because it is funded by, you know, basically hiding the cost through inflation, essentially siphoned off uh, every dollar holder in the world. And that will hide it long enough until it can metastasize, at which point it starts causing serious problems. And then of course you get the next crisis. And so, you know, you're gonna need the Fed to fund that one, get that one uh, stood up and rolling. Uh, and so, you know, you end up with this endless series of crises. And of course, from the state's perspective, this is a feature, not a bug, right? Because every single crisis grows the state, right? This is Bob Higgs' crisis and Leviathan. So, you know, whether it's World War One or COVID or you know, the 1970s uh, inflation crisis, whatever the "quote unquote" crisis is, every single one of them grows the state. So, from the state's perspective, they love this process. They got the Fed to get the thing rolling then you get the crisis then you blame putin's price hike and the greedy grocery stores and then at the end of this process you get this level up one of the slides i used to i, I used to teach at a business school and one of the slides i used to use was regulations by year and You can trace this from like 2001 and 2002, three, four. You go along, you get more regulations in all these different areas. So financial regulation, labor, uh, environment and whatnot. And then you get to 2008. In 2008, you get this massive jump, like 30, 40% across the board in all the regulations, including environment. You might pause for a moment. You might say, well, the 2008 crisis didn't feel like a CO2 crisis. Why did environmental regulations expand? And of course, the reason is that in any crisis, the Overton window pops open. The voters say something must be done and then politicians show up with something. And that something inevitably swings in one direction, which is the expansion of the state. And I suspect that we're only starting to
0: realize what's buried in these massive multi-trillion dollar omnibus bills that, you know, they wait till Christmas Eve and and they they pass them sight unseen. And and I, I think we'll be. Discovering for years the, the, the toxic regulation that came out of that process.
1: For sure, absolutely.
0: So let's talk about um, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and and the possibility of contagion and and what, from your perspective, caused that? Because I think you know we ha- we haven't fixed anything since that bailout, and and we should mm-hmm. be aware of of when the next shoe is going to drop.
1: Yeah, so what, you know, Silicon Valley Bank had all kinds of salacious details about the quality of their loans and whatnot, but really what drove them under was that the vast majority of their assets, what was in their vault, uh, was in long-term government bonds. And this is what governments tell you to do if you're a banker, because it's the quote-unquote risk-free asset (laughs) which <laughs> you know, which is a kind of a propaganda term on its own. Are you are you
0: almost? I have a I have a question on that specific. I feel like the same people that are judging whether or not your investments are sound um, are telling you that you have to buy their product. Is that sure. is is that an overstatement?
1: No, I think absolutely. Government wants you to buy their shit coin. Yeah. yeah. Without a doubt, uh, you are, you know, funding the um, the venture capital process uh, by investing um, your money in their asset. And so, you know, Europe is much worse about this. Uh, Europe all but requires banks to hold specifically government uh, tokens. And, you know, within cryptocurrency, this is a well-known scam. It's called a uh, token sink where you create some set of incentives, for example, staking, where you, know, you try to encourage people to hold your coin, even though it's it's, it's, it's worthless, uh, you incentivize them to buy up your coin and then to do nothing with it and just sit there on it. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, um, essentially every scam in crypto, and there are many scams, uh, has a, like an exact real world analog and specifically what government does day in and day out with trillions of dollars. Um, But in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, so they held all these bonds because the Fed raised bonds, um, raised interest rates so quickly, the bonds crashed. So rather than having a dollar in the vault, maybe they had, you know, 80 cents or 60 cents. So at that point, the bank is technically bankrupt. They have to make an uncomfortable call to the FDIC, at which point they get taken over by the government, temporarily nationalized, uh, and then, you know, uh, cleaned up, uh, resolved. And... So the issue there is that really what laid them low was the bonds. It was the fact that their entire asset base just eroded, you know, 20, 40%. These were allegedly safe assets, right? So they were treating these as if they were, you know, uh, good as gold essentially. Uh, And that should be concerning because that's also the case across the entire financial system. So the FDIC in December had estimated that there were about $600 billion uh, in such um, sort of uh, uh, hidden, unrecognized losses in bond portfolios. Uh, there were a pair of studies reported in the Washington Post about two weeks ago uh, that those numbers are closer to 1.7, between 1.7 and, one, and, and $2 trillion of losses. Now, that's a concerning number because, you know, sort of public numbers say that there's about $2.2 trillion uh, worth of buffer between what banks owe and what they have. So if indeed those losses, you know, are are what, within 90% of uh, what's keeping the banks out of bankruptcy, then yes, it could be a potentially catastrophic problem. Uh, Washington Post said that, you know, this is involving hundreds of banks. I think they estimated about 200 banks.
0: The, of course, what the government um, will say, and, and Janet Yellen, continues to assure us that the banking system is fine, which tells me that it's absolutely not fine, is, yep. is how I interpret her statement. But, but of course, there is a de facto mm-hmm. promise of a bailout, even though we have all sorts of uh, regulatory structures that, that are supposed to prevent this kind of, of mismanagement. But as you say, it's baked into the system. But can they, can they bail out everybody?
1: Uh, Yep. Yep. They can bail out everybody um, by converting it all to inflation Um, and they can get away with it because, you know, so what happened in 2008 is that they issued all the uh, just, you know, enormous quantities of money relative to how much money existed back then. Uh, And a lot of us warned that it would lead to inflation and it did not. The reason is because the banks held on to it. Right. So they didn't, you know, take the money and then spend it. They, they took it and put it in their pocket. And so if, if banks were to do that again, and, you know, now that they had that uh, enjoyable experience of 2008, sort of from their perspective, a free lunch, right, they could give out trillions of dollars without uh, the inflation showing up immediately. Uh, that's no doubt how they'll try to do it again. So they try to encourage the banks to act as a token sink uh, and keep all that money in there. And in that case, the inflation won't occur for a while. right? And then as it slowly, slowly drips out, you can blame it on whatever happens to be in the news. Um, in the 1970s, you know, for, for perspective on their ability to find excuses, in the 1970s, when inflation start, uh, first started taking off, the party line from the Fed at the time, Arthur Burns, was that this was overpopulation and it was the earth running out of resources. And then you know of course uh it was the arab oil embargo right which was a one-time event okay that that doesn't explain a decade of ongoing inflation uh so they grab whatever's in the newspapers and they deploy that and they will do that again especially if it's gradual enough uh, that it comes back out so you know the fed uh treasury they all lie they're very open about it they call it uh, guidance and they write you know academic papers on this this is this is not a conspiracy theory they they celebrate uh skillful lying uh and they guide on inflation they guide on um uh, bank stability you know there are leaks just recently that came out from an fdic meeting a couple months ago where they're sitting there they're talking to each other about how fragile the banks are and the one guy says well you know we really shouldn't go public with this um you know because it might worry the public because you know, the public doesn't realize, um, or no, the public thinks the banks are safer than I think many of us in this room do. And the rest of the guys in the room laugh. Right? So this is the FDIC. Now, this was recorded because it was a broadcast to the very, very small number of bankers in the United States who sit there and actually listen to FDIC meetings. So this starts to look an awful lot like an insider club here. we got a bunch of guys sitting around telling jokes how the American banking system is fragile and at risk of collapse, and by gum, don't tell the normies. Yeah. They, of
0: course, the, the scapegoat uh, today, if you believe Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, is, is price gouging from from greedy businessmen but that's probably always been a go-to
1: yeah for sure and you know of course it begs the question you know um if oil companies are greedy this year why weren't they greedy last year you know how do we possibly get them to be like those you know (laughs) generous uh oil company executives of uh what is it 2022 so right always um you know it's just an endless series of series of excuses one of the popular ones in the 1970s was the grocery stores which you know anybody who's worked in grocery stores (laughs) should appreciate the humor grocery stores have the thinnest margin in creation i think it's thinner than uber drivers Um, you know like the notion that grocery stores are sitting around (laughs) rubbing their palms you know squeezing the customer do you really want that tomato how much do you want it uh, is comical, but right they will deploy that. And of course, a cooperative media will amplify whatever they want. Thank God that over the past couple of years, enough people have woken up uh, to understand that we're being lied to. You know, if you compare to 2008, uh, for example, you know Heritage is extremely opposed uh, to every aspect of these bailouts. Uh, I think the the right, broadly speaking, is extremely uh, opposed to them, and if you Compare that to 2008, I think a lot of organizations on the right were intimidated because they had such control over public opinion that they were telling, you know, the American public that the world was about to end. And anybody who had the stupidity to contradict that was going to actually, you know, they would absolutely be savage, right? The public opinion could be turned against them at will. At this point, because of the censorship, because of the lies against you know, Trump, against a, a variety of social issues these past couple of years, a very large amount of the American population is inoculated and they finally understand that even if the New York Times and CNN and the Department of Whatnot agree on it, it's quite likely still a lie.
0: Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org/kol and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Well, it, it might actually be a leading indication that it is a lie if they do agree on it. Uh,
1: right. Uh, well, uh, I, you know that's that's the running joke. Like, if you call something a conspiracy theory, um, at this point, it's a you know it's a compliment. You know, conspiracy theorists are sort of the the um, the startups of new ideas, right? You know, every every good idea these days has to start as a conspiracy theory.
0: So, I, at, at, on a similar issue, and like when you know nothing about anything, and you look at. Uh, for instance, current legislation to to ban TikTok, which actually turns out to be the new Patriot Act to, to censor um, dissident voices on social media. All I had to do was look at Republican co-sponsors and see Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham, and I knew exactly that this was the wrong thing to do and that it would be catastrophic for human liberty. And it's the same on some of these things. Um, let's. Let's let's dig a little bit deeper, and this this gets into a um, sometimes contentious issue amongst Austrian economists. But but I take it that you are from the Rothbard school as a critic of, of fractional reserve banking, and yeah. particularly how this plays into all of this this fraudulent um, banking that we're that we're seeing right now. Explain what frank, fractional reserve banking is, and what what the Rothbard critique of that is.
1: So fractional reserve banking is when you deposit your money and even though you may be under the impression that your money is sitting there like it's a warehouse uh, or like a farmer taking their grain to a grain silo, right, you might think that your money is sitting there, but actually it's almost immediately lent out, probably before you exit the bank door, it's gone. Um, and, you know, it's it's lent uh, in loans uh, or it's sent out in speculation on financial markets or, you know, there's a million things that banks can think uh, to do with your money, um, but very rarely does it actually sit there and wait for you. And this is a practice that had – it's really created uh, the financial panics that ultimately led to the Federal Reserve, uh, is banks irresponsibly – Um, sort of double promising the money, right? So on the one hand, they lend it out. And then on the other hand, they tell the depositors, oh yeah, you can come by anytime you want. And so my argument is that, um, you know, this is fraud uh, because they are telling two people that they have the same dollar, right? So it's fundamentally no different than what Sam Bankman-Fried said, where, you know, uh, with FTX where people gave him money and he said, oh yeah, yeah, your money is right here for safekeeping right here in my pocket. Mm Uh, and then, you know, he went out and spent it on, um, you know, real estate in, uh, Bahamas. And what was the pod he had anyway, his, his love family and, you know, whatever their needs were. Um, and so the alternative is in my opinion that you essentially you structure banking the way that you would structure any other corporation, uh, which is that if the bank claims to have money that you can immediately withdraw, which is called a demand deposit, or most of us would know it as a checking deposit, that actually has to be in cash, not in bonds, alas, not in gold either, because it has to match what the person's taking out. Gold does fluctuate. So demand deposits have to be uh, backed by cash. And then the bank is also free to offer time deposits. So most Americans know this as a CD, a certificate of deposit. And in the case of a CD, those are typically for terms. So it might be three months, one year, whatever. The bank can can freely lend those out. And in fact, it doesn't have to back it with anything. <clears throat> and the structure looks like, say, Ford Motor, right? So Ford Motor has certain things that it owes right now, okay? Um, it owes a vendor, you know, who delivered – a Chick Fil A delivered lunch, and he's waiting for the money. Okay, so it has some money that it owes right this moment. Ford also has other chunks of money that it's going to owe in 10 years, so like a bond. And Ford is not required to set aside a bunch of money for that 10-year bond. Okay, and so my, or I think the full reserve Rothbard's um, solution for you know this instability, this sort of two dollars being, um, or a dollar being in two places at once, is to have that clear divide. So. Empirically, about 20 percent of the money in the U.S. banking system is in checking deposits. The rest is in saving deposits. If that uh, percentage mirrors, then you know the typical person would have walking around money, let's say one month spending or two months, whatever, they would have that in their checking account. That would be actually backed by cash. The rest of it would be long term accounts that banks would offer you attractive interest rates for in order to, to entice you to then allow them to relend it. That would be a completely stable banking system. Uh, It would mean that if you had a bank run, that would simply be people withdrawing their cash. Your bank would shrink. You might hope that doesn't happen. You might have an uncomfortable talk at the shareholders meeting, uh, but your bank is not in failure of collapse because you do not owe money that you pretend to have. Now, Caitlin Long out in Wyoming actually tried to do this, Uh, custodia. She had applied for a Fedmaster account, which you need to run a bank. And she was uh, uh, suggesting a bank that actually had deposits that were fully backed. And she was refused. And she wasn't given a clear answer why she was refused, but there's a lot of speculation that she, she was needs,
0: refused. She needs permission from the Fed or the FDIC. I don't remember.
1: Uh, in this case, it was the Fed that would grant it. But um, the uh, Office of the Controller of the Currency was involved. Um so I, I don't know who exactly had to sign the, or I, I don't know if the OCC was required to sort of sign the form along the way, but I know that she was in deep discussions with the OCC as well. Um, and so she was refused. And there's speculation, um, including from her, that part of the reason why is that that would specifically put fractional reserve banking in a tight spot because it is inherently um, bankrupt, bankrupt. Uh, uh, by definition, if you owe more money than you have, you are bankrupt. If a bank owes a bunch of money, right? Remember, any money that you can go to the bank and get right now is money that the bank is saying they are willing to give you right now. So that is an immediate debt this very moment. Any other company, if you had an immediate debt this very moment and you did not have immediate cash this very moment, we have a word for that, is bankrupt. Yeah. And so the concern would be, of course, if you approve one full reserve bank, then, well, people might want to use that, right? Americans might want to protect their life savings. They might want a bank that actually claims what it is. Because the world we have today, right, what happens instead is that grandma is defrauded, right? So grandma's under the impression that her money is sitting there safe and sound in the bank, that there's a prudent thing to do, you know? I I don't want to buy these exotic foreign bonds and, and whatnot. I'm just going to keep my money in the bank where I know it's there. And the reality, of course, is that her money is invested. In exotic farm bonds perhaps it's been invested in venture capital in the crypto industry such as silicon valley bank her money is off in dangerous places doing dangerous things and she has no idea right if you actually sat down with grandma and you said why are you investing your money in crypto startups and she would say what are you talking about because she has no concept how fractional reserve banking works which is fine i i'm most st- uh, When I have a plumber fix my <laughs> plumbing, I have no idea how plumbing works. I don't want to know how plumbing works. But I do hope that when he fixes it, he's not actually using some fractional reserve where, you know, he's introducing toxic substances into my drinking water or something. And it, it, it should be the same rule in finance uh, where, you know, banks are actually being honest about this. And so, you know, one of the debates is, you know, well, in a free market, everybody uh, is free to contract. Uh, anything they want. And, you know, Rothbard's response, which I agree with, uh, is that under a free market, right, under common law principles, in order for a contract to be valid, most sides must actually comprehend the contract, right? If I sell structured finance products to 84-year-olds with dementia, that is going to be considered fraud by any court, anywhere, libertarian or not. And so by the same token, if the average American does not understand how fractional reserve works, if they do not understand that banks do not have their money, and I know they don't understand because we have bank runs. Right? If Americans understood that your bank, your money's not there, it's off in Paraguay and it'll come back sooner or later. If they actually understood that, then the bank would run out of money. They'd say, I'm sorry, we don't have any more money. And then everybody would say, oh, shoot, I got to come back tomorrow. It'd be like going to Walmart. They run out of eggs. You say, "Ah, oh, you'll have eggs tomorrow. Why? Because Walmart is not... Uh, technically bankrupt at any given moment.
0: Well, I wonder how much of this, uh, the, the Concordia example is is pretty telling to me because I I think about it slightly differently. And I, I know this debate, I'm hardly an, an expert on, on banking, but it strikes me that the market could heal itself if there was in fact um, fraudulent banking practices happening. And the fact that the Fed won't allow for a more sound banking model to be legal suggests to me that the market could in fact fix this without um, saying you can only do um, 100% reserve um, banking. Is is that fair? Because it, it strikes me that that the moral hazard here, that the, the problem of a Silicon Valley Bank and other banks um, generally is that they sort of know in the back of their minds that if they take bigger risks. They they might get bigger rewards and then they'll make more money. Or if things fall apart, they're going to they're go to the Fed and say, save me.
1: Right. Right. So you could argue uh, for an outcome where it's caveat emptor. And, you know, one generation of grandmas um, must eat cat food to warn uh, the other grandmas. Uh, you could indeed argue for that. And that would fix it. Um, it would be sad. The grandmas uh, who took one for the team. But of course, that then begs the question how realistic is that? So, in our political system, right, if you look at this FDIC uh, expansion, for example, (laughs) it sailed through Uh, small government ideology and all. Uh, So, I think at some point you have to negotiate with reality. And, you know, yes, you could imagine um, getting to a free banking system. Uh, The Suffolk system in early American history worked, you know, fantastically. That was a free banking system where uh, the banks were. Um, Their prudence was enforced by a single bank called Suffolk that had a very good reputation. It would punish banks who misbehaved. Uh, Absolutely, free banking has worked many times in history. Uh, Unfortunately, at the moment, we are not um, angels on the head of a pin. We are asking how to get from here to there. And, you know, there are only two ways to get from here to a Suffolk system. Um, Or really, there's only one way, which is... uh, you know, one generation of grandmas must suffer. That will not happen in our in our current system. And so the only way that will realistically happen is if the, um, you know, Ragnarok arrives and <laughs> a whole lot of grandmas go down and then we come out the other end and decide that uh, we're not going to imitate the same mistakes. So, you know, I think realistically... Yes, in a philosophical sense, um, you know, if we're all having drinks late at night, absolutely, you could you could plot a path from here to free banking. I think what's a heck of a lot easier is that you simply, uh, you know, there's a tiny little rule. It's a FINRA rule nobody ever noticed, and it says you, you'll, you'll experience it if you have like a Schwab account and you want to trade options or if you want to buy um, uh, shorts against stocks, then they'll ask you a bunch of questions like, how long have you been trading? Okay, Those are suitability questions. And because of that little tiny rule in FINRA, they have to do that for certain things because the presumption is that most people don't know what a short is, they don't know what an option or a future is, so all, you know, the path from here to full reserve simply does that. It says, OK, uh, absent some positive suitability, uh, the assumption is that average people do not understand what fractional reserve is.
0: If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibi on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So in a sense, uh, uh, full reserve banking is a Politically viable solution to Bingo. the the corruption of the current system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I mean I like um, I like viable solutions because um, too often we we libertarians sort of fantasize about about this perfect world and I'm like I'm just trying to get from a moment where we um, keep spending multi-trillion-dollar spending bills without giving it a thought and and that yeah. that would be a win to me if we could stop that.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm completely sympathetic. I mean, you know, I have my 10th Amendment fantasies, you know, where I cross out all of the uh, agencies that would be defunded and and, and imagine, um, I, I don't know, all of the lattes I would order from the former uh, secretaries of whatnot. Um, I mean, I'm completely sympathetic. You know, I, I, I absolutely love fantasizing about the future, you know, very interested in, uh, uh, you know, sovereign republics or the monarchy solution, all of these. I love them all, however, the specific question you know, uh, at issue is how do we get from here to there? And
0: so what, does, uh, what, what do um, grandmas who are fluent in Austrian economics do to protect <laughs> their wealth as the government continues to insid- insidiously steal it from us? Um, give us? Give us some proactive things we can do. And I realize you're not an investment advisor, but there, there, are, some, there are some ideas to protect our downside risk.
1: Yeah. And uh, by the way, there are grandmas who understand. I have a friend on Twitter called Bitcoin Grandma. So there we go. Uh, That is the perfect target market for this advice. Okay,
0: we're all following her right now. (laughs) That's
1: right. Uh, Okay, so first, uh, simplest, uh, diversify your bank accounts. Uh, That is the easiest way to protect yourself. The bailouts, I think, almost certainly, you know, given the political constraints that we were just discussing, the bailouts will, um, you know, realistically, everybody will be made whole, certainly if you're Uh, politically sympathetic, which means if you're working class or middle class, um, at least in the early stages uh, of a crisis, right? At some point, they come up against other constraints, potentially inflation. Uh, So right, number one, diversify your bank account. Number two, gold, Bitcoin should do quite well. Uh, There is the possibility of a dip in either one temporarily on the way to the crisis. Uh, for because debt is canceled and and uh, sort of technical reasons. Uh, so there's that possibility. Um, just, you know, hodl. Uh, don't even worry about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, both gold and Bitcoin do very, very well in an inflationary crisis. In the 1970s, gold went up 16-fold. Okay. Uh, stocks are not as bad as they look. You know, again, in the 1970s, inflation went up about 100%. Stocks went up 125%. I'm not a huge fan of holding stocks during crises because I like to sleep at night. uh, So I would not recommend that. Uh, And then of course, you know, just sort of standard real things, right? So investing in real estate tends to hold up pretty much no matter what. Of course you have temporary dips like in the 2006 to eight, but compared to holding cash, real estate Mm -hmm. certainly holds up a lot better and and then you know just just sort of general sort of um uh tv dad advice you know focus on who's close to you your network's gonna come in handy the worse, the worst things get the more you care about what's immediately next to you and not about what's remote right so the people in your life your family your neighbors uh your network of friends the people who can help you out if you're in need uh those all you know sort of take over your entire world that's pretty much all that matters so is a good time to spend time with them invest in them to a certain degree you know turn off the tv and sort of focus on that yeah uh,
0: that that last part is very good advice um one one last technical question so i i view bitcoin and gold as as hedges against tyranny and and maybe not like i don't view it as part of an investment portfolio per se and i i'm very much a a long run person i don't I don't even look at my stocks on a daily basis because you would just go crazy. But um, you, you have also emphasized and, and a lot of people emphasize the fact that you need to control your own wallet and you need to, to make sure that you're, you're actually owning the assets, not in a, in a third party situation.
1: Yeah. And this is one of the things I love about Bitcoin is that Bitcoin um, is inherently full reserve banking if you're self custing in other words, if you are controlling the keys uh, to your Bitcoin. Broadly speaking, two things on Bitcoin. Um, number one, if you don't understand it or you're not absolutely passionate about it, then do not buy any more than a play around amount, okay? And the reason is that um, if you don't truly love it, then you know Bitcoin goes up and down a whole bunch, very famously. <laughs> Um, you know, HODL, hold on for dear life, is what describes the life of a Bitcoin owner. You will sell in a panic, right? Guarantee you will absolutely sell low. So do not buy substantial amounts until you absolutely understand. You have to love it. You have to be out there saying Bitcoin fixes this on Twitter before you're ready to buy substantial amounts. Um, If you're not there yet, put it in gold. Gold is pretty much the same thing. Uh, it doesn't move as much, um, but you know you're you're going to get to the same destination. And I'm sorry, there was. is there another part to that, or did I? No, I think
0: that's as as long as you're. Um, I don't quite understand this process for gold, but you you want to actually own gold as opposed to.
1: <sighs> yeah, gold is a lot trickier, and this is part of the reason that I do like Bitcoin so much. Um, and. I love gold, I mean, I've loved gold my whole life. Um, if we you know, switched over to gold, I would be perfectly thrilled. Um, but gold's fundamental issue, it's fundamental weakness is that it's physical, ironically enough. And because it's physical, it has to be stored somewhere. And the costs of securing gold means that gold storage tends to be extremely centralized, right? It's some sort of castle with a moat, with sharks, with uh, lasers. Uh, and so that means that it's uniquely vulnerable to the state, right? The state can find the gold hoards because they have addresses and they advertise. Uh, they've, they've done it before. Yeah, they have done it before. And, you know, this is, um, you know, anybody who loves gold, sort of the natural question would be, OK, if gold is so great, where is it? Right. Where are the countries that are currently using gold? And of course, the answer is none. Now, that's not because gold sucks. It's because gold has a fatal vulnerability, which is that it is exposed to government seizure And therefore government control uh bitcoin to me anyway one of its just absolute genius aspects is that it cannot be controlled uh it cannot be shut down as long as there are two humans in the world who are willing to communicate via morse code in zodiac boats off the coast of bolivia wait okay bolivia doesn't have a coast nice try as long as there are two humans using bitcoin it survives it is uh very, very impressive as a technology is fundamentally state-proof. Uh, so, you know, if, if we get to the destination uh, and, you know, people finally give up on fiat, you know, if this happens in the near future, then I would assume that uh, gold is going to be the successor. Uh, people are more accustomed to it. Very, very few people uh, understand Bitcoin enough to, um, to, make, it, uh, to make it stable. Right. Uh, you know, if only one percent of people are sort of trading in and out of something, it's not going to be stable. Uh, and so until a lot more people understand it, it's not really going to be great money. Uh, it's sort of a speculative money. Um, but I mean, of course, having said that, gold is also speculative money. Right. If you look at gold since it was fully demonetized by Nixon, there are years where gold has almost doubled you know, over, say, a three year period in price. And there are years where it's fallen by almost half over a three-year period. Now, anybody who doesn't know history would look at that and say, Oh my God, gold is useless as a currency. Who wants a currency that's going to lose half its value in three years? You got to be joking. You, You know, what are you guys drinking? But of course the answer is, well, yes, any asset, if it is monetized, You you know, because it is the monetized asset, it has this extremely deep uh, base of demand. And so it would tend to be very stable. So, of course, if gold were monetized, it would cease jumping, you know, 50 percent every three years uh, and it would be stable. And similarly, there will come a day, perhaps in 50 years, where enough people understand uh, Bitcoin that it might go there. But anyway, that's that's a long ways off. And so if the crisis happens the next 10, 20 years, then I would expect uh, that we would go to gold. Uh, And then I expect that, you know, gradually uh, Bitcoin would continue taking market share from gold, not all at once, but, you know, over a 10 or 20 or 30 year period. If, on the other hand, we're stuck with fiat for another 30, 40 years, then I would guess that we just go directly to gold and skip the middleman.
0: Okay, um, so I, I love your short videos on Twitter, but why don't you tell people where they can find your your writings, your videos, um, and 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 actually what you do at Heritage, I
1: guess. Uh, sure. Uh, let's see. I'm on Twitter at prof, uh, prof profstonege. P uh, R O F S T O N G E. I've also got a Substack, um, which is uh, what the heck is it? Substack dot. That's my thing. St. That's what it is. Uh, got videos over at YouTube as well. So check those out. Uh, if you've been off social media because of the censorship, uh, Twitter is lit. I highly recommend going back there. Uh, Elon uh, looks legitimate. Uh, and then as far as heritage, come visit us. Uh, we have a really, really good team of based economists. Uh, we you know, very deeply oppose pretty much everything about the Biden regime and uh the federal reserve and the you know horrible things that it's doing to the world so i hope that you'll visit us at heritage.org
0: cool thank you peter this has been helpful
1: thank you it's been an honor thanks for
0: watching if you liked the conversation make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications and if you want to know more about free the people go to freethepeople.org